0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Living in This Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories can bring us back to ourselves. I'm Asher Panjuris, and today I have a very special interview uh, with a very busy and important person. Adrienne Marie Brown is the author of Emergent Strategy, Shaping Change, Changing Worlds, and the most recently released, Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. She's the co-editor of Octavia's Brood, science fiction from social justice movements. She's also a writer, social justice facilitator, pleasure activist, healer, and doula living in Detroit. And I think everyone should try reading Pleasure Activism. It is confronting in some ways. And I think that that is Adrian's intention. You know, I I really think the introduction to the book is, is beautiful. And I want to give everyone the opportunity to have their own experience with the book and choose parts that you like and don't like. But I really encourage you to consider reading it. I'm going to, if I could, I would read you the entire introduction in this int- in, in this introduction. Um, but I really want the interview to kind of speak for itself and also for the book and um, the book collaboration. There are many, many really amazing people who collaborated um, with Adrian on this book. So I'm just going to read a few parts of the introduction and then we will uh, listen to the interview with Adrian and me. Okay. So, in the introduction, Adrian said, This book comes about partially because I realized that I have supported thousands of people in taking steps they crafted, articulated, and needed to take steps closer to pleasure and liberation. I have seen over and over the connection between tuning in. To what brings aliveness into our systems and being able to access personal, relational, and communal power. Conversely, I have seen how denying our full complex selves, denying our aliveness and our needs as living, sensual beings, increases the chances that we will be at odds with ourselves, our loved ones, our coworkers, and our neighbors on this planet. A couple of the questions that Adrian asks. What would happen if we aligned with a pleasure politic, especially as people who are surviving long-term oppressive conditions? A couple other questions she asks. So rather than encouraging moderation over and over, I want to ask you to relinquish your own longing for excess and to stay mindful of your relationship to enough. How much sex would be enough? How high would I be enough? How much love would feel like enough? Can you imagine being healed enough? happy enough, connected enough, having enough space in your life to actually live it? Can you imagine being free enough? Do you understand that you, as you are, who you are, is enough? And this is one last part that kind of helps us to understand who who Adrian is. I am a hermit nudist at heart. It has taken me a while to learn this, but I feel most at home when I'm alone and naked, or with someone where we can be alone, together, naked. And I'm queer, in the grandest sense of the word. I buck the norms in my sexual life and in the rest of my life. For instance, while I enjoy a solid dose of masculinity in my lovers, it only intrigues me if I can top, bottom, and sideways them, and if they can see the woman and the boy in me. Adrian is really committed to transformative justice and to incorporating the needs and impulses of the body into that transformative justice framework. And I really hope you enjoy this conversation and look forward to hearing your feedback. Adrian, thank you for being here with me. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Asher. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah.
0: So I like to start each episode asking folks to reflect on some of their earliest memories of what it meant to be in a body or messages that you received about being in a body, either verbally or through kind of witnessing other
1: people around
0: you being in mm-hmm.
1: their bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, I love this question. I feel like it makes something visible that's not
0: mm-hmm.
1: usually visible. And I've been spelunking around in like my memories. <laughs> so I'm just sort of like, oh, there's so much more here than I realized. What leaps to mind, and I, I'm sure this wasn't the first understanding of being a body like i have some early memories of just like playing and that the body is like the place from which you play from which you do cartwheels from which you like Mm -hmm. bond and make friends but i feel like one of the first things i remember hearing about my body was no one wants to marry a fat girl like and this idea that it was very important that I always orient around my body in such a way that I never ended up as a fat person. And, and, and that's not my, like, it's not actually my nature. Like my nature is to be a fat person. (laughs) Mm. So it was a very like self um, you know, just I, I spent a long time trying really hard to have a different body. Very early on, there was a sense like there's a right body. And it's not the one that you have. But then there's some people who seem to like the one that you have, but they're probably, there's probably something wrong with them. That kind of vibe, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I also do have memories. Um, the other like wrong body thing that was happening was like being on the soccer team and having a crush on this girl on the soccer team. And... And being like, you can't have a crush on a girl. Like, there, I'd never seen anyone have a crush on a girl. Like, I'd never known, you know, I grew up in a military environment. And it was just like, all the queers were top secret or something. <laughs> like, I just didn't, yeah. you know? So yeah. I was like, I, I don't doubt at all that there were queer people around me growing up. But I just didn't have, I didn't have a visual. So those, that mm. memory too comes of like, that she was like, so fit. Like, so good at soccer and so good at everything. And like, just so hot. And I think I was just like, yeah, she's just so great at soccer. Like, she's just so great. And like, that's just being true. like, yeah, I don't awesome. have words to describe what I'm actually feeling or thinking, mm. but something is happening at the level of the body. Mm. So, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Yeah. And to have it, I mean, it just those two examples you gave, and I think probably a lot of people listening could relate to this. It, yeah. It's so pervasive, you know, like you're your kind of romantic or sexual desire is yes. is contained or under question. And also the kind of way that your body just came into this world is also not okay. And And I just, I wonder what, if you could speak maybe a little bit more about how you were able to move, especially when it comes to, I mean, I think, this podcast is about queer embodiment. So, you know, like how you were able to move from having so much constriction um, and messaging that didn't allow for your visibility. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. I would say it's funny. So writing Pleasure Activism was a chance to kind of examine some of these things because I was like, how, how, who do I think I am? Right. Like in that, you know, both the like kind of salty way of asking that, but also like for real, like, who do I think I am? Mm. Who am I? Right. Knowing that those are distinct things. Like there's a thing that I'm thinking myself to be. And then there's actually me. And I feel like one of the gifts of turning 40 has been this kind of relaxing into like, oh, whatever I have thought myself to be, a lot of it has been trying to deny what I actually am. And Mm -hmm. so I can look back and find some choice points. And so one of the choice points are like places where I'm like, fuck it. I'm just going to be me was in my twenties when I discovered ecstasy and ecstasy gave me the permission to go out and suddenly be in my body in a way that was like, (sighs) just there was so much freedom and so much permission. Like I and I still I get on a dance floor and it's just like one of my truest selves is the self that I am on a dance floor, and it's one of my queerest selves. Like it's the place where like I move towards the bodies that I want to move towards mm-hmm. and receive the bodies that are moving towards me, and it's just so delightful. Um, and it's one of the places where I've always had strong boundaries. Like if someone comes and tries to dance with family, that is not my flow. Go away. And like just the other night, I was out dancing. Um, it was a good friend of mine's birthday, and um, Wajid was spinning, who's like just this outrageously good DJ, and get on the dance floor, and I'm just having a blast. And then this like cis dude comes up to me and starts like just getting in my face. And it was just like like a zen boundary expanded around me, and like twenty, you know, it was just like just move yourself away from my
0: from my body.
1: Um, so in those spaces, I've always felt like this capacity to be like back the fuck away or come closer or also just deeply at ease with myself. Like, I feel like early in life, um, I realized I'm like, some people really love dancing with other people, like grinding on someone or something else. I'm like, I really like my own personal space, my own beat. I don't want to follow anyone. I don't want to lead anyone. Like, I just want to move. So I feel like ecstasy and also mushrooms, I feel like both ecstasy and mushrooms like gave me permission to go into those spaces fully. And then I have found like, oh, this is a space that I can just access. Like I don't need any other substance to access it. Like I just need a rhythm. And Mm -hmm. like rhythm is one of the ways that I really feel like I landed in, like this is who I truly am. This Mm -hmm. is where my blackness resides. This is where my queerness resides. The fabulous parts of me, the whole self, a lot of it was like sprouted on a dance floor, you know? Mm -hmm. And I feel grateful for that. And it's been an interesting thing too, because I've I've been, I have um, early onset arthritis in my knees. Mm -hmm. And so trying to navigate, like, how do I still get to have access to the, the delicious experience of dance that I first awakened into as my body shifts and like I'm learning. And I told a friend, I was like, yeah, I went dancing and I danced for a few you know, like, for a part of the party, I was, like, dancing on my legs, dancing on my feet. And it was great. It was fun. We were having a great time. And there's came a moment where my knees were like, okay, that's good. And just, like, being like, okay, now I'm going to sit down, but I'm still going to dance my ass off. It's just going to be on this seat, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And I was telling your friend, and she was like, I bet you're, like, a really good chair dancer. I was like, I am a really good chair dancer. <laughs> and I'm starting to feel into the pride of, like, how much you can do in a chair. and get excited about like how good it feels to actually dance where I'm not, I'm not worried the entire time. Like I'm about to hurt myself. Right? Mm-hmm. And I'm just sort of like, Oh, now I just have to go all in here. <laughs> yeah. So, right. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think a lot of what you're saying sounds
0: like you're, you're meeting your body where it, it is and, and just thinking about how you're describing those experiences of, you know, initially being able to kind of relax into dancing and it, and how it's, it is sort of solitary for you in some ways just makes me think about I don't know like the kind of process that I go through or witness for myself and with other with my patients that I work with is mm-hmm. this idea that a lot of what what feels freeing is actually what, something that comes from inside first you know so like these kind of body cues or these things that you're describing around it's not a performative um experience it's it's something that comes from internally which i think you were saying you know is maybe easier to listen
1: to as a 40 year old maybe and like oh i mean like when you're young it's all about mm -hmm. like you're going to the school dance. And like some people know how to dance. And some people didn't receive the original mm-hmm. instructions or whatever it is. And like, you know, it, it was also always always very tied into identity for me and, in other ways. It was like as a mixed race person who was raised away from both sides of my birth, you know, the family. Mm-hmm. It was just like my parents. We're like, we're an interracial couple from South Carolina. It's not safe for us to be there. And it's not a safe and easy place for us to raise our children. We're going to go off. And so we kind of created this little family unit. And so like my parents have some moves, but like I didn't grow up like, now we're doing a line dance. Now we're doing this dance. You know, it was always like the visitation. Mm -hmm. Like I would visit into family and be like, oh, y'all do this. You know, one side, my my black side, my family, they get down, like we dance, we have parties. And the other side of my family, like, I can't remember a party where we had dancing outside of like a wedding, and then it was sort of like a com- comic, like, ooh, we're having fun kind of thing. But like, you know, th- I feel like, I mean, and this is one thing, I don't know if people talk about this, but I feel like a lot of times when I'm at a white party or a white space, there's a way that it's like, we're kind of making fun of dancing in a way, like, we're joking or whatever, especially in a family, intergenerational So space, like, oh, like, yeah. I'm doing the boogie or whatever. I'm like, what is that? Like, it's okay, like, to just do the boogie and, like, just do it like you mean it or whatever. Anyway, so it's just been this interesting thing to grow up and navigate and be like, oh, here's a thing I can see. I don't know if other people see. But, you know, like, even in this past year, I've been like, I feel intimidated by twerking. And why? Why is that? And like, how do I claim whatever access to twerking, you know, I I have the kind of ass that should be great at twerking. Like why, what's happening? And just like being like, okay, fuck it. I'm going to teach myself. I'm going to like teach myself. I'm going to like get gather together all the Megan The Stallion and Big Frida and all the Tune Day and all the different artists. So I'm like that, they get my ass moving and I'm just going to like watch videos on YouTube and like just really learn. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh yeah, I can do that on my own. But that solitary nature, like Maya Angelou talked about that in a conversation with Oprah about like how everyone has to have inside them that inviolate place like that no one else can touch or hurt and i feel like the dance floor especially especially in those early years when i was like oh like you know one of the beautiful things about using certain substances is that they transport you to a place of presence that so is so beautiful within That you don't have a lot of energy to look or turn outward and be concerned if someone's watching you. I remember doing a mushroom trip once where I was told later, like there was a DJ and there was a live band and apparently, and the DJ was playing when I went on the dance floor. And then like the whole world came apart into like 20 different levels and I was moving, my body could dance on all the levels at the same time, like all this stuff was happening. And like six hours later, (laughs) like I finally like went to sleep. And the next day someone was like, yeah, you were dancing, like the DJ left and like while the live band was setting up, you were still dancing. You were still hearing whatever it was you were hearing. Then you danced and you were in rhythm when the live band came on, you were like moved into that rhythm and you danced. And then the they stopped and then the DJ came back on and you just danced through all of it. And it was just like the best thing ever. And I was like, got it. That's amazing. Because I, I wasn't, you know, I was just in the world, right? But I feel like this, to me, it's been an important thing as an organizer to be like, I want to make sure that any movement space I'm creating and any future I envision has room for that kind of solitude has room for everyone to have that inviolate space inside Mm -hmm. and everyone have time to have like days alone times alone solo dance parties like it just feels like my introvert self is always advocating hard inside of any anything I'm creating for people and it's because of I'm like oh that's my nature and I you know I can handle some time with humans but like I'm much better when it's just like me and some plants in the sky or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I'm like, Oh, I'm probably not the only one like this. How do we make sure that we're envisioning futures where, you know, you have agency like yesterday, even some of my favorite people were sitting on, on the back deck of my house. I was like, I looked out and I was like, there you are. I still need my alone time. I love you. You know, (laughs) it was like, yes, I love y'all so much. And I love having the agency to hug you and then be like, I still, I hardcore need this alone time right now.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I can a hundred percent relate to them. A Virgo, hermit, introvert. It's the thing. Are you a Virgo? Yeah. Oh my God. It's so intense. It's really real. It's really (laughs) intense. But it's reassuring when you kind of can witness other people embodying Mm -hmm. it, you know, and I like hearing your story. I think, Last week, I interviewed Jenna Wortham, who um, Ooh, is, really, I love her, really cool and amazing. Yeah. But one of the things she said was, you know, she was talking about this idea of feeling like safety underneath the skin. And I think yes. there's something about, yeah, like this kind of the emergence of comfort or more ease in the world really yeah. having to be worked at at that level. And it yeah. seems like that's a little bit what you're saying about, you know, your, the experiences with, with psychedelics or, you know, that mushrooms or XC and, and probably many other things, you know, many other yeah. sort of internally focused activities or rituals yeah. that you prioritize.
1: Yeah. And I, you know, it's interesting because I'm sure that I would have eventually reached this place without substances. Right. I think it's the truth of our, existence is like everyone has that yourself (laughs) yourself inside yourself and even if separation the separateness is a myth which is almost always the thing that occurs to me when i am in some altered state is like we are all connected we are all one massive entity Mm -hmm. but there's something happening at the cellular structure like there is a cellular structure and I love the idea that it's like inside of this great happening and this great togetherness, there's also a distinction about me. And, and the more I can understand about that distinction, the better use I can be as a human being mm-hmm. in this experiment. And I feel like that often that I'm like, oh, I don't want to get ever into a place where my life is just one reaction after another. and. Mm that I'm just in so much, I'm in a constant state of relationship, not just to humans, but to content, to news, to crisis, to, Mm -hmm. you know, all the things. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to make sure that I'm constantly checking in and be like, "Eh, is this, is this work that I can attend to? Will my attention help this in any way? Mm -hmm. If not, what am I paying? You know, I don't want to give, like, I really have been paying attention to like, not giving performative attention to things. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like we do a lot, again, in movement, where we call it being in solidarity. Mm-hmm. And to me, you know, there's an aspect of solidarity that's just like, let's make sure everyone knows about this, and, like, that's fine. Like, that's, in, you know, informing people, especially when mainstream media is not telling a whole story. Like, I'm like, I'm here for that. But I also, I see us so much be like, sending love to this people, or like, I'm performing outrage about this thing, but I'm like, are you outraged? Like what action are you ready to take? Like, are you ready to change how you are? And for me, this, this came out, you know, I was a war tax resistor for 13 years, ultimately not a functional strategy and the IRS caught up with me and I've been having to pay, pay money to them. And it's made me really humble myself to like, okay, like the way our system is currently set up, you get punished if you try to divest from, you know, paying for the harm, right? So you're punished unless you agree to be complicit in the harmful things that this government does. And I'm like, I have to really reckon with that. I have to really reckon with that and figure out like, I'm not just responsible for my own personal choices. I'm responsible for like everything that the country of the US, United States of America does. I'm complicit because I support it with Mm -hmm. a portion of my earnings. And so that has really, really shaped like what I think of as my political attention. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, ah, oh. you know, like looking at what's happening in Sudan, you know, I'm like, where, where is the US responsible for this, right? Where, where are we playing a role? Where are we, you know, it's just fascinating to me to be in that place where I'm just like, oh, massive things, massive violences are taking place in my name or massive ignoring of support, or massive other things, right? And how do I be in right relationship with those things, right? Mm. That there's some of it that I'm like, even if I stopped every other kind of work I was doing, and only focused on whatever this latest crisis is, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't make an impact. And so then I try to figure out where can I make an impact? And Mm -hmm. that's where small as all has been a lifesaver for me, because I'm like, Oh, there are a lot of places where my small impact can have a big bigger impact, mm-hmm. so like I spend time as a facilitator, and some of the things I facilitate i'm like i'm only one person, and I'm maybe only facilitating twenty five people, but these twenty five people are organizationally located in a place that touches you know three hundred thousand people, and if those three hundred thousand people get touched by this idea, they have families they'll have reach and so just thinking of like where do I want to be in relationship with where I can have the most impact on the things that I that I care about and that I'm directly complicit in? Mm,
0: yeah, I mean it's it's interesting to hear you talk about that because it it's a very strategic in some ways effort or intention, but it also it just I mean part of what I want to talk to you about. So maybe this is just me my way of talking <laughs> about this, but yeah, here we go. Know, it's strategic, but it's also f- kind of fantasy or it, it, you have to be able to dream it in a way yeah. um, and dream expansively or um, and so I think Octavia Butler who is someone I'd love to hear I basically I'm curious how her work has and for anyone who doesn't already they should listen to your podcast with your sister where you talk about the goddess you really center. <laughs> sorry what
1: were you the talking goddess. About the
0: goddess? sure yeah mm-hmm. the goddess of Octavia
1: <laughs> of the course. Goddess.
0: Yeah, <laughs> really center like her intentionality or what you understand to be her intentionality in her work, but you know, a lot of it is imaginative and dreaming up things that we can't see right now. And I, mm-hmm. I guess that's it's really interesting. I guess to hear you talk about your organizing work from on those multiple levels,
1: you know. Sorry. Ooh. I just choked. You okay? I am.
0: Do you want a minute? One second. (laughs) Take a minute. Oh, my
1: goodness. All right. Hello. Hi. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) So, sorry about that. I have like the most sensitive, tender little throat ever. Mm, Mm hmm. And so often if I try to eat while I'm doing anything else. Oh yeah. My body is just like, Nope. Actually, no, we told you not to do that. Yeah. And we're not going to let you do that. And so multitask that one. Yeah, no, <laughs> but it's always sad. Cause I'm like, I've been doing intermittent fasting and mm. which I'm loving because I've been I mean, this is totally where the like living in this queer body gets real, right? It's like for years I've had eating disorder or eating dis-ease where I feel obsessed with food and then it's like, oh no, I need to lose weight. In order to lose weight, I'll just eat nothing delicious forever. And then, and then I go off that train and I'm like, fuck that. Now I'm going to eat everything or whatever. And so I've been really interested in like, is there a way to get off that train? And so the intermittent fasting has felt like a really interesting way because you're Mm. just like at very minimum, like limit the amount of time that you where food is even on the table is like part of your day. (laughs) And I wasn't sure if it would work for me. And then in January I was with a friend who did it and I was like, Oh, this, I'm going to try this for a week. And it was amazing. It was just like, it was like hours of the day where it's just like, this is not eating time. And I found like my brain just unhooking from thinking about my next meal and and then what I want to eat is shifted. So it's just like mm. I want fuel. I want fuel. That's what that's what food time is about, is like delicious fuel. And so that's been kind of cool. But we'll see because it means often that I'm then like when I do get hungry, which is usually around like two or three in the afternoon, I'm like, now I'm ravenous. And if I have a day like today where it's like, well, the whole day is still planned up, you know? Anyway, so.
0: Yeah, there's um, like, some tinkering to do around what, how to yeah. kind of integrate something like that into your
1: lived reality to, yeah. to make it work. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. But it's also mostly fine. But I have found, I'm like, oh, this is like the third or fourth time lately that my throat has like had this kind of response while I was around other people. Mm. So that's also interesting because normally it's like I'm multitasking. I'm moving around on my own. It happens. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then like, I'm like, oh, this is, it's, I'm like, okay, I guess I need to be more, I don't know. I can't figure out yet if it's like, you need to be more aware of it. Or if it's like this is this is a good a gift like here you are, mm-hmm. <laughs> here you are as a human being. So I think you were asking me about Octavia, but I can't remember. Were you asking me That's how okay. she influences yeah. the work?
0: Or yeah, okay. I'll, I can kind of get us back there. I mean, I appreciate you talking about the the stuff around food because I mean it's yeah. pretty much uh, in one way or another. So much of what impacts a lot of the people that are listening and a lot of people I end up working with is sort of the specificity of living, like being in a queer body, in a body yes. that maybe doesn't conform in ways that we actually, I mean, it just, it's something that isn't discussed explicitly in the queer community enough, I think, is oh, yeah. ways in which, you know, queer, trans, gender nonconforming conforming folks are you know, have a very conflicted relationship with nourishment and food as a result of i mean innumerable things right, but that yeah. you know that yeah, so it's just it's helpful to hear yeah. you talk about it as much as it's also you know it's painful and <laughs> difficult to <laughs> yes. to hear about, but it is I think to make those conversations more explicit is important
1: i think it's so important and it's also really difficult, like I feel like. I remember, um, the first time I ever wrote about just like navigating food is difficult for me and how many people in my queer community were like, oh my God, thank you for talking about (laughs) like, um, just talking about it, just saying out loud, like this happens to me, like, you know, so that feels big. And then there feels like there's something else that's like, you know, I did a sugar shift thing with people, and like a ton of people that, you know, I'm in community with joined that space, and some queer, some not queer. But it was just like, again, the same, the gratitude of just like, God, can we talk about this thing, which is really impacting us and impacts the quality of our lives, Mm -hmm. impacts like what happens when we come together in space? Because I think there's still a way that if you, I mean, two things happen. One is if you have privilege, it kind of partners up with any shifting needs you have around food or drink or space or scent or whatever. It partners up with that and becomes like something you feel comfortable demanding. Mm -hmm. And then if you don't have that privilege, but you still have those same issues, it exacerbates the ways in which you don't feel comfortable being able to ask for those things and then it all clashes <laughs> together. I think it's really up for our movement spaces right now mm-hmm. is that almost every movement space I go into now, it feels like such a live concern that people are in is like, whose bodies get prioritized in this space? And it's not necessarily the ones you think, it's like, it's not, it doesn't work to just have a rudimentary answer to that, right? Like you, it may, you have to really be paying attention And then it makes, for me, I'm like, oh, who do I want to be in relationship with around questions like this? Because I'm like, I have been in so many spaces where, in queer and trans spaces, where we're already challenged so much to either stand out or hide. And this becomes a quick and easy place to, you know, just be like, oh, I want to stand out. I want to have this need. I want to make everyone attend Mm -hmm. to it. Um, or I want to hide this need because I'm used to hiding everything else about myself and everything else Mm -hmm. true. And people are not super kind when it comes to anything related to bodies and food, even those who try to do their best, right? There's such a way that you tell, you know, you, you give an inch and people, you know, take, (laughs) you know, the the circumference of the globe. Like, they just like, Oh, now, now that you open the door to this one thing, let's, I want to, have access to having whole conversations around every aspect of your health or whatever. it's just like, so fascinating to me, you know, I've seen a lot of my trans allies go through this, my trans, I guess I'm the ally, my trans homies go through this, where it's just like, Oh, like I'm talking about, you know, getting surgery that will help me be myself. And you want to turn this into a moment about my health. (laughs) And it's just like, no, fuck you or whatever it is. So I feel like that where I'm like, I need to get in a better relationship with my arthritis and I want to stop obsessing about food. Here's the experiment that I'm in. Mm-hmm. And people should only ever ask me about it if I say they can't, right? Like I, I'm no just totally. like, Oh, it's another arena for consent. Right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, there's,
0: this, <laughs> there's this person, um, at it, Lindsay Mack who is like a tarot. Yeah. Reader yeah. yeah, yeah. Has been, um, kind of pretty influential for me in a lot of ways here in New York. You know, one thing that she says is, "I'm going to tell you about this aspect of my experience, and I'm not, you know, I'm not open to feedback around it or caring yes. or anything. You know, I don't need your yeah. prayers or wishes or you know, <laughs> Reiki or anything like that. I,
1: you know, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, so and so it's so sweet. It's so I sweet really like people that. try to love each other. It is. I mean, so sweet. it's so sweet. I mean, it, and it. I think it is good. Like. I've been learning to do, yeah, I think of those as, like, preemptive boundaries, and I've been learning yeah. to do those in places where I'm like, I'm not saying you're going to mishandle this, but I am saying almost everyone else does, and so <laughs> yeah. because of all those bad people, right. <laughs> like, right, I just right, want right. to give you a chance to not step on my toes here, <laughs> because it also creates, yeah. it creates, like, a wave, right? Like, I'll, I never forget, like, if someone has offered me unsolicited anything around my body like I may get over it I may may or may not say something about it and I may be fine with it but it never goes away like it's always there's always a part of my mind that's like oh that person um thinks there's something wrong with me how I am right now and and which may or may not be partnered with the things that I'm thinking are, are wrong with me or the things that I'm working on But there is something, like, I really have been trying to work with, like, well, what if I approach myself as if there's nothing to fix? How do I invite people to be in a relationship with me around, like, there's nothing to fix. I'm learning all the time how to feel as good as I can in this body. I'm learning all the time, like, how to feel safe when I go through the airport or land in a new place, you know, how to feel safe with whichever lover I happen to be with in public, like, how to feel. I'm learning all of that all the time. and. I don't think anyone out there has better answers than me for what I'm learning with my own solar system. A friend of mine, Lu Hoi Man, teaches with generative somatics, and we were in, in class recently and she was like, and I, I think I've heard this thought before, but I, it came through in such a crystal clear way that it was just like, each of us is the original inhabitant of the sovereign space of our own bodies. and." there's something about the act of healing the relationship we have with our bodies that is about reclaiming sovereignty. As we're growing up, all these different people try to stake claims on the territories of our hearts and our minds and our skin and like how all that should look and feel to someone who doesn't care about us, you know, because that's the thing that trips me out is like so often I'm like, am I tripping on how a stranger is going to handle seeing cellulite on my legs? Like is that really yeah. what's shaping my my, you know, whether I'm gonna be warm or cool outside? <laughs> right. Is that right? right? <clears throat> so and I'm like, oh yeah, of course I am. Like I grew up in the US. Like, I grew up in a US context. And even when I was outside of the US, it was still the context of a patriarchal control over what is a pleasing body. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, that 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 earworm is still like Alive and going. And so it's just, yeah, I get blown away. And I think actually this might tie us back to Octavia because it feels like one of the things that was so interesting to me about how she wrote her characters, that they were often people who would not fit the mold of what was considered traditionally attractive. And they were still but there was something still irresistible about their leadership or something super compelling about their leadership and i feel that way about octavia herself as a living entity is that i'm like okay like i can see the ways in which she didn't fit into the standards of her time and you know and those are the things that i absolutely most adore about her right i totally think of her as like my ancestor i love her And I'm just like, I pay so much attention I like the twinkle in her eyes or like, you know, her underbite or like her voice or different things. Just like, I just think she was, she was incredible. And I, you know, I hope that she at some point in her life just got to receive some, some physical worship, you know, (laughs) like that kind of body love worship. But I feel like she knew how to write about what it is to be a real human being who doesn't fit into whatever the standards are, but still has something of deep value to offer to your species and to your time and to your community. And letting that shape you into a leader, letting that shape you into who you're meant to be in a lifetime. And I feel called by that, you know, like I feel like, oh you know, back in the 20s, those back in those early years on a dance floor, I was like, I'm a queer unicorn pleasure goddess. Like I know that about myself. I know that. And then I would be back on a Monday morning, like, how can I fit into business casual? Like, where, where is my, you know, J-O-B? Like, mm-hmm. what, you know, does this person that I like, like me back? Like, you're just like mm-hmm. caught in such minutiae. And now I feel, and it took all that time to live into like, no, I, I actually am a, a queer unicorn pleasure goddess. Like, that's actually me. And And I can be that and still, Trip all the time and fall. I mean, like I, I trip over everything. I run into everything. Like all, and I always have. (laughs) You know, it's like it's not a state of disorganization. It's just like what the material world is always a little close. You know, I don't know, but (laughs) you know, I'm like, whoa, like, how do you get some space out here? Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, and that's very. I mean, there's there's something.
0: (laughs) Well, there's something very there's something really amazing about that idea of how you describe the characters that Octavia created. It feels very queer in a particular kind of way. Like a, there's something, I think there's something about queerness. And I'm just curious what you think about this, but you know, there, uh, and we're recording this during, you know, pride month. It's and
1: pride oh, month, babe. Eh? Right? <laughs> yeah, I
0: know. The whole thing. It's so pride. <laughs> yeah. And so there's a kind of conventionality or like heteronormativity that goes on in in that world. But there's something about, I guess I'm just curious to hear you out a little bit more around how you, how Octavia Butler's work or, you know, has helped you to understand the specificity of your queerness more
1: um, Uh, in a way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so... I think that the first thing that leaps to mind is in Lilith's Brood or Xenogenesis series, where they come across the Unkali, the Uloi. Ugh. They're this third gender basically of people. And they are truly third gender. Like it's not like they're just like some mix up of, of the genders we're familiar with, but like truly something outside of that. And I I remember reading that and just being like, that's my type. Like that like just like <laughs> yeah, whatever totally. that place is you know and Mm. I feel like for the law I was like oh I like kind of I that you know like I was trying to find that place in between but I was like Octavia wrote in a third gender and it blew my mind like it really was something I was like I didn't know you could say that you know I didn't know you could long for that and then she complicated it sort of like once you go third gender you never go back like you know the way that humans with this other species like once you mated with this other species you no longer felt the same kind of attraction for for just a human, right? Mm-hmm. And I always took that to be like, you know, my analysis as a queer person of it was like, once you queer your love life, you don't want to go back into any mm-hmm. binary space. It's no longer attractive to fall into the binary roles that you may or may not have been trained in. And I find that happens for me, like, when I have a male lover that I'm like oh you have to still be a queer male lover like you're is you know you can be a guy technically but like i still need you to be i need you to be experimental with me and that doesn't mean i have to be the top or something we together need to craft what's going to work for us and we can't make any assumptions based on you know how people have supposedly had sex cuz this is the other thing that's always so mind blowing to me is what we're told is gay sex it's fairly recent that that has been walled off as like, this is the way that is. like It's all just ways that bodies touch other bodies and all kinds of orifices and all kinds of things. It's like, so interesting to me, that's like someone sitting there and being like, mm, everyone seems to be enjoying that blowjob thing, Like that's illegal now, or that's this now, or that's that now, you know, the moral coding on mm-hmm. what bodies you know long to do is always so, it's harmful to me. I think it's one of the most harmful things we do is to say that anything that two bodies are drawn to do between consenting adults is is wrong or abnormal or mm-hmm. you know something else it's just like it, you know it, it makes me so sad because i feel like people miss out so much on learning the sensations that they actually enjoy and mm-hmm. that's really all you need to partner well with another human being physically is just like here's the sensations i enjoy what sensations do you enjoy like that mm-hmm. and so i feel like Octavia tapped into that somehow It was just sort of like what matters is the sensations. And so like she has a vampire who <laughs> you know people basically get into a symbiotic relationship with this vampire who is embodied as a, a girl child, right? And but then is you know, is actually like an ancient being who's been a vampire forever or whatever. Um, But then, you know, people, the pleasure people are experiencing are literally just being bitten, right? They're just Mm -hmm. like, I just want that. That does what I need. That is a fully Mm -hmm. satisfying experience, whatever. And I feel like I meet people like that now more and more often who are like, the thing that really arouses me is this kind of contact or the thing that really arouses me Mm. is watching watching you dance or watching this or watching that or something else. I'm just like, Oh yeah. Like, why would it be, you know, binary pounding? Like why would that be the thing that's supposed to arouse all humans? And I feel like Octavia understood longing and arousal in, in, in ways that I think come from long loneliness. Right. Okay. Like, I think there's a way that when you, you know, there's a period of my twenties where I was really on my own, At a different level for a while and like in and longing for something. Like I was like, Mm -hmm. I'm missing out on partnership. I'm supposed to be with someone. Mm -hmm. Isn't that when my life is gonna begin? Like when I find that, you know, like a person. And you know, when you're in that place, you notice all the small tendernesses that humans offer each other that you're not receiving. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, this is all my projection, like Octavia and I never got to talk about all this, but it feels like there's a lot of longing that's presented in the ways that she writes all these beautiful texts.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And I think that that's true of um, depending on this, the person, but you know, with, with many queer people in our communities have grown up in states of longing, you know, and that becomes eroticized, you know, like your, your experience with the soccer player, you know, right. Exactly. That was erotic for you. You didn't, couldn't register it as such, but you know, there was so much that was about the longing for something that you didn't know, have words for. Um, exactly. And that, that, you know, there is a kind of pleasure in that maybe not when you're a child because it's really confusing
1: yeah. and because well, no one's yeah. And also you're not getting, I mean, this is something that I tried to touch into in the book, how we get taught about sex in such wrong and violent and confusing ways. And yes. so in the book, there's a few different things. There's a long essay by Amita Swadin um, talking about childhood sexual abuse, which is, I think, a really powerful conversation. And they, we got to do a, a podcast interview for the Healing Justice podcast mm-hmm. where we're in conversation about it. And I keep yeah. telling people, like, you have to read their text. But that's one piece. And then I included a few pieces in there from people who are currently parenting young children about like, how do we raise our children in a more sexually liberated framework that also still keeps them safe? Because I like, I think what happens is because we don't teach children and young people to be comfortable and at ease and have consent over their bodies, we're setting our babies up to head into experiences where they are getting taken advantage of and harmed and confused and lost just because they don't like, no one will say the words to them, the right words for their actual body and like talk about things in ways that acknowledge like, yeah, you have a body. Now you're feeling things. It shouldn't Mm -hmm. be a secret. You just need private space for that. Right. I don't Mm -hmm. want you to feel fear. I do want you to feel a sense of agency and space and boundaries and consent. And you don't have to hug anyone. You don't want to hug. And like, and it's hard as an adult who loves children, you know, I'm like, I missed you. Like when I show up, what I want is for you to just run towards me and jump up on my, you know, into my arms and just tell me I'm your favorite adult that ever lived. That's what I want. And like, to not receive that, to instead have a child is like, okay, like you're here. I'm still doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, whatever it is later, like maybe I'll warm up to you, but like, I really am in my own agency. And I'm like, When I'm around children, I get so inspired because I'm like, your boundaries, we start out with pretty clear boundaries. Like we start out with total interdependence where we really rely on someone else, other people for everything. But we also have a really clear sense of like, "Mm, nah, like, no, not impressed. Don't like that. Mm, I don't want to. Whatever it is, I'm like, ah, what do we do between the ages of two and 16 to maintain that clear no? And also, here's all the access you have. You have agency over for your body. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: And I'm like, it all breaks down in there. And it's something I'm really interested in. Yeah. You know, yeah, those preferences are so
0: powerful, you know, like being able to articulate your preferences and feeling empowered to do so. I feel like Mm -hmm. so many of the people that I work with and myself included, you know, are like relearning in our adult life. What are our preferences? You know, oh yeah.
1: And that you get to have them, right? Like, I mean, I have been blown away by just this idea that it's like, now, anytime someone asks me to do something, I'm like trying to slow down at the moment that I normally just kind of knee-jerk react, like, sure, yeah, like, you want to go out, so do I then, or whatever it is, and I like try to slow way down, I'm like, no, I don't want to do that, right? Mm -hmm. And being like, and that's not a personal slight, it's not being impolite. it it might mean I'm not as interested as the other person is in something. And then we can deal with the reality of that. Right. Mm -hmm. But I feel like so often, you know, most of, most of what we have to do, I think to get free is to just stop lying. And I think we have to then get familiar with all the places where we do lie. And it's shockingly like multitudinous, the amount of places where we not only do lie, and opt to lie, but like are trained and are expected to lie. And I get fascinated about this. And I'm just like, oh, like, when you ask, you know, if someone asks you, like, hey, will you do this for me? Like, you're supposed to say yes, right? Like, the, the, what's, what they have worked up inside of them is just getting the question out with the expectation that like, as an adult, you know, who's been trained mm-hmm. in the US, like you will say yes. And <laughs> it's such a trip to make that first chip of like, no, like, mm-hmm. I don't have time. You know, lately, it's been, I get a lot of requests to blur books and to do stuff that I'm like, I would love to do all of these, I don't, there's no time for me to do it well, because it would mean that instead of doing any of my own work, I was just reading other people's books and writing blurbs for them, right? which is also not paid work. It's just like a thing you do that is awesome. And so I'm like, okay, like how many of those can I do in a year? And that's the cap, right? Mm -hmm. And what are the relationships around which I can do that? And that's the cap. And like, you know, when people are making a request to you, they never know how many other requests you're getting in a day or in an hour or in the last Mm -hmm. 10 minutes. Like, We don't know those things. And so I think it's both preference and there's something about capacity. And it's like inside those things, as you get older and you realize how time is speeding up, then it becomes so precious, right? It's like, oh, I only have this much time left. I actually have no idea how much time I have left, but I know that it's precious and it'll probably shorter than I want it to be. Mm -hmm. And I've lost enough people now to recognize the preciousness of it. So my no is really imbued with a lot of energy, right? A lot of like, oh, like I really, really need that time. And so I can't spend it here. And where can I spend it? And like the body though, is such a great partner in that because before I can come up with any clear reasoning in my head, my body has a real clear no and a real clear yes. It's very rarely a, uh, you know, it's very rarely a maybe. Mm. It's almost always like, hell no I don't want to do that yeah or and then I and sometimes I will soften that because like no you know someone's like can you do this hell no like that's (laughs) not you know that doesn't feel like the goal either but I I feel like uh how can I have a no that's a no and just trusting how can I get to a place where I'm trusting the no or trusting the yes and let the reasoning come in later but be build, re, rebuilding the, the connection between me and all the wisdom that's coming up from my body all the time. Mm, I like
0: yeah. That. Yeah. So, you know, we, I would love to talk more, but we are coming to the end of this conversation. And the last quick question I have for you is, and you can kind of go wherever you'd like with this, but, you know, if you think back to that younger version of yourself that you're talking about at the beginning of the interview, Is there anything that you would like to say or compel someone else to say to that younger part of yourself, knowing what you know now in your life?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the main things that still help me now that I wish I had just like taken in a lot sooner was that there's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with me. And don't take it all so seriously right? Like there are going to be serious parts of life and they'll make themselves abundantly clear. Like when the real shit that needs to be felt into happens, you know, like when your friends get cancer or, you know, you get your heart truly and appropriately smashed or, you know, there's things that you're like, you'll know when the serious shit happens, when your country takes, takes on fascism as like a, you know, as a, as a sprinting Race, right? Like, there's things that you can't deny will require your serious attention, but so much of the rest of it being a little late someplace or forgetting, you know, to take the compost out or I don't know, just forgetting to work out for a year or whatever. Like, there's just things that's like, it's okay. Like, it's just okay. Mm -hmm. And don't take it so seriously. Like, look for the pleasure, look for the joy. Um, My friend Alana said this, um, she passed away last fall. And one of the things she said, I got to interview her uh, about 13 days before she passed. One Mm -hmm. of the things that she said was, you know, cancer is hard and I'm just going to let that be hard. Like, I'm just going to let that be hard, but I'm not going to make anything else any harder than it has to be. Mm -hmm. And it's just, you know, hearing her say that, I was like, that reverberates throughout space and time along my whole system. My life, and I hope it reverberates like through every life that it reaches. Like, I've been playing the audio for people everywhere, just like, listen to this yeah. wisdom. Like, yeah, let the hardship be hard, don't add to the hardness. Like, find mm. the places for ease and find those pockets of air where you can sustain and like coast for a bit every time you yeah. can, you know? Yeah, so yeah, I like that. That's what I want little baby Adrian to know. <sighs> Thank you very
0: much. Thank you. And the last question is just how can people best be in touch with you and your work or hear about your work?
1: If there's a professional inquiry, right, then people should check out the website alliedmedia.org slash ESII. That's how you can book me or one of the many people that is now joining the Emergent Strategy team. And... If it's just like what's Adrian up to, Instagram is kind of my spot where I like experience the most joy and share the most things. Um, that's Adrian Marie Brown on Instagram. Yeah, and then I have a blog, AdrianMarieBrown.net, where I write. I don't write often, but when I write, it's it's usually pretty meaningful to me, mm. like what I share there. And I also try to keep track of all the different like podcasts and places where you can listen to the work in the, in the archive there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, those are your your podcast with your, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I have a podcast with Autumn, my sister called how to survive the end of the world, which is about surviving apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity.
0: Love it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank Thank you, you, Asher. I really appreciate it. Hey everyone thanks for listening. this is Asher. I hope you enjoyed this discussion and if you want to keep it going, I have a new announcement. Um, you may have seen this on Instagram but very quickly I'm excited to announce that I'm going to be offering post podcast talkback sessions called Together on Tuesdays and This will be open to all the Patreon supporters. So if you're a current Patreon supporter at any level, you will have a lifetime access to this living in this queer body, extended together community. And then from today going forward, you can join Patreon for as little as $10 a month. And this goes towards production costs, but also gives you Access to live or recorded post podcast conversations where we'll take a topic from the podcast interview um, on a particular week and explore it in more depth together. I hope this serves to connect people from all over the country and world who've been listening. To find out more, you can go to the website livinginthisqueerbody.com and there is an easy banner to click. Or you can uh, go to Patreon and search Living in This Queer Body once you join. The information for Living in This Queer Body Together community, which is open to all people, is going to be available for you. So let me know what you think and join me for one of these talkback sessions so that we can kind of keep going deeper and deeper into what gets brought up by some of our really lovely guests.